another Monday, another overnight scape central. And, uh, yeah, with another and, uh, with my little pet, uh, way of expressing myself that, that, oh, I am stuck with it. And to this and to that and to one and to two, but we make the best of it because as uh, Brett, the appreciator, as well as, as PQ River, the ongoing host of the Overnight Scape Central. Uh, it's part of me, and I have to embrace that. And you have to accept things before they change, because if you fight your own nature without accepting it first, as many would say, that leads to no solution. And this is the show of shows. We do these every so often, and this time around... We only have Frank Edward Nora and myself, and I'm still not sure exactly what I will do. The idea of the show of shows is you do, instead of a segment, a specific show or monologue on the topic of your choice, try something out, or just kind of shoot the breeze. And, well, it's just Frank and I, at least as of the moment. There's still a little time that would be called evening, so something may yet pop up in an inbox somewhere. Thus, I don't think there's any point in delaying or driveling along here. Let's get into the thick of things and listen to what we got from Frank. Welcome back to Department 23, the show where we listen to music from 1923, which is now in the public domain, in the United States at least. And let's get started with this song.
there you go. That was Tripping Along by the Continental Dance Orchestra. That was by Jerry Sullivan and uh, Harry Hosford. And, uh, yeah, that was giving me some uh, Leroy Shields vibes. You know, the music from uh, the Little Rascals, Our Gang, Laurel and Hardy and all that, the old uh, Hal Roach Studios. I really like that one, Tripping Along. Of course, all this, this, the surface noise, the scratchiness. I do think that... Uh, we're, we're probably getting close to a, a kind of an AI system that can clean these up completely and they'll sound, and sound completely uh, perfect. But for now, we're going to have some scratchiness on the stuff from 1923 here on Department 23. And uh, let's see what's coming up next. That was Snuggle Up a Bit by the original Memphis Five, and it was composed by Napoleon and Signorelli. So I like that one. That's a pretty rockin' number. That's a good one. I like that one. 
Um, yeah, so this all this music we're playing is from 1923, and that's 100 years ago now. Of course, I, I'm recording this uh, in August 2023, 100 years later. It's 100 years ago. Gee, thanks for finally putting this stuff into public domain after 100 years. Just imagine every single person on Earth in 1923 that was an adult is now gone, right? I, I, I mean, 100, like 100 and... What's an adult? 18 years old? There's really no... I don't think there's any 118-year-olds in, in the world right now. I mean, obviously, unless there's like vampires or androids or whatever, but that's all sci-fi stuff. Is that real? I don't know. But let's hear another song. Covering their mistakes. Now the duck gun got 'em, the duck gun got 'em. When you hire 
Wow. What, what was that? That was pretty wild. The duck stun got me. Uh, what's going on there? It must have been a phrase or something. Yeah, the, the duck stun got me. Like, what does that even mean? I know they're mentioned. It was like nursery rhymes and like Old King Cole was drinking a lot. It's like the duck stun got me. The duck stun got me. There must be some hidden meaning there that I'm just not getting. I was trying to do a little research while I'm listening to it. It says it's like hillbilly music. But here it says uh, comedian and ukulele accompaniment. That's kind of cool. If you're a comedian, you have you have an accompanist who's a ukulelist. Uh, Al Bernard and Frank Ferreira. And uh, they were also the writers of this, I, I guess. Yeah. Um, I don't know who's the comedian and who's the ukulele player, but I like that one. The Ducks Dunn got me. Of course, uh, you know, I, I don't really preview these uh, as, as I'm finding them. I just listen to the first few seconds. I'm like, yeah, this sounds good. Let's play it. Of course, as uh, you're hearing these songs, there's always this, this vague fear that the song's going to go bad and have some sort of offensive content in it. But it was 1923, you know, I, I, I don't know. You never know what's going to happen in these songs. Let's see what's next. And learned a lot of things I didn't know. 
I called upon my landlord. He was my friend, you see. Once when I needed money, he raised the rent for me. So I took the $50,000 and bought a razor blade to cut my hair. What? He bought a razor blade to cut his hair? That's how the song ends? This guy had $50,000. Now, by the way, I looked it up. $50,000 in 1923 is worth $892,000 today. It's a lot of money. That song, though, it doesn't really make any sense. Like, he, what are you saying? You want to take lessons to speak Greek? And it's a lot of money. He, he, he didn't even go to Montreal. What's going on in this song? This song is not, it, it doesn't make much sense. It really doesn't make much sense. That was uh, sung. So the song is called So I Took the $50,000, uh, sung by uh, Billy Jones. Sounds a lot like Billy Murray, though. Remember Billy Murray? Had a lot of songs back here as, uh, in this time period as well, including um, Gasoline Gus and his Jitney Bus. I wonder if it was Billy Jones is is a different name for Billy Murray. I don't know. Maybe not. And that song was written by Mescal and Gumble. Yes, the songwriting team of Mescal and Gumble. I like that one, though. He took $50,000 and... Like he, it doesn't sound like it sounds like he was just buying like kind of cheap stuff with it. You know, he's being very frugal with it. He was being responsible with his fifty thousand dollars. Yeah. Anyway, just some uh, technical notes here. I'm recording this on my my new microphone I bought uh, to do shows like this. It is the uh, the Audio Technica AT2020 USB mic. Very very cheap cheap. It's like well, it's like eighty bucks. You know, and um, you just plug the USB into your computer and then uh, you, there's a headphone jack that comes out of it and I plug it into my uh, Roland recorder, my RO7 recorder and just record on the recorder so I can record my my voice and the uh, computer very easily. A very similar technique as I was using in the past for uh, using that um, Samson G-Track mic. But this one is a bit smaller and uh, my G-Track just wore out. This one is... Uh, you know, it's pretty nice. You know, it's not the best microphone, but it'll do for a show like this. Department 23, where we only listen to music from 1923. And here's what's next.
And there you go. That was a medley of Southern Melodies by Fred Van Epps. And I actually looked up Mr. Van Epps here. Uh, Fred Van Epps, uh, born 1878, died 1960, was an American banjoist and banjo maker. The Van Epps recording banjo was a well-known model until 1930. He was the father of jazz guitarist George Van Epps. Is, this, is George Van Epps well-known as well? Let's see. From the swing era, 1913 to 1998. Interestingly, yeah, look at this. Uh, George Van Epps was born in Somerville, New Jersey. That's very close to where I grew up. Uh, and moved with his family to Plainfield in 1892. Plainfield is where I was born, in Plainfield, New Jersey. Wow, so he was like a big banjo guy. And his son, George Van Epps, lived from 1913 to 1998 and was also born in Plainfield, New Jersey. Wow. So, see, you can learn things here in Department 23 about all all of these different... You know, there's so much music. Like I, Where I'm searching here is the uh, the George Blood Collection on, uh, on the Internet Archive. And uh, just just in 1923, there's 6,766 uh, results just in this one archive. Though, of course, there's multiple copies of, e of each song in some cases. But um, anyway, that's a lot of music in one year. And there's, there's, there's got to be much more out there. That was uh, m music released in 1923 than this one collection. So, uh, yeah, we're going to keep going here and find uh, what's next.
And there you go. That was uh, Teasing the Frets by Nick Lucas. Guitar solo with piano. That was released by the Brunswick Balky Colander Company. And this is kind of a synchronicity. I, 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 I'm choosing these songs semi-randomly. Nick Lucas, uh, born at Dominic Nicholas Anthony Lucanese, 1897 to 1982, uh, was an American jazz singer and guitarist. And uh, he was the first jazz guitarist to record as a soloist. His popularity during his lifetime came from his reputation as a singer. His signature song was Tiptoe Through the Tulips. Wow. That Tiny Tim would later uh, use as his uh, signature song. Wow. And he was born in Newark, New Jersey. Another Jersey guy. This is wild. We're making all sorts of discoveries here on the uh, Department uh, 23. Let's see what we got next coming up here. Wow. 
I, I'm not even intending this, but another New Jersey connection. Can you believe it? That was Indiana Moon by Fry's Million Dollar Peer, sorry, Fry's Million Dollar Peer Orchestra uh, by Davis and Jones. And uh, I, I'm looking this up, and this uh, this guy is named Charlie Fry, right? And and he and this was his Fry's Mil, Mil, Fry's Million Dollar Peer Orchestra. And he was best known, Charlie Fry was best known as the musical director at Young's Million Dollar Pier in Atlantic City, New Jersey. Newspaper articles in the late 1920s reported that he had played more than to more than 12 million people over the previous years. So this was a, a, a pier at, in Atlantic City, Million Dollar Pier. Now it turns out I've actually been there, not that the Million Dollar, apparently the Million Dollar Pier was there from uh, 1906 to 1981, right? But it was succeeded by uh, the pier shops at Caesars. That's that uh, shopping mall that goes out towards the ocean, uh, uh, you know, from, from the boardwalk. Uh, it's, sort of, it's sort of going across the, um, the sand there, the beach. And I've been there many times. I think I've actually recorded in there for the show. Uh, so I, I know exactly where this is. Let's see what it says here. Uh, Young's Million Dollar Pier. The Applegate Pier, built in 1884 and located at the foot of Tennessee Avenue, was the first successful amusement pier built in Atlantic City. It was multi-decked and 665 feet long. The Applegate Pier was bought by John Young in 1891, and he named this pier the Ocean Pier. The Ocean Pier burned down in 1902. John Young built a bigger and better pier that opened in 1910. This was the Million Dollar Pier, and... uh, I did do the calculation. I think that's about a $17.8 million today, right, because of inflation. Uh, the pier included the world's largest ballroom named the Hippodrome and a huge exhibit hall. The pier hosted movies, conventions, and exhibits of every description. Teddy Roosevelt gave a speech there in 1912. Some of the big bands played there, including uh, Glenn Miller, Ta- uh, Jimmy Dorsey, and Artie Shaw. So... Really wild. All these, all these weird, random New Jersey connections. I like that, though. Listen, you don't know what's going to happen here on Department uh, 23. We'll see what happens next.
right. What we have there was uh, Southland Melody by Enlo Scalzo and his instrumental quartet. And, and by the way, I am uh, saving these links. Uh, they're available on request if you want to be able to find these songs. Because um, there's so many different versions of each of these songs on there. But yeah, that was a medley of songs from the South. And I uh, I recognized three songs. I, some of them I couldn't get. For a Swanee River, way down upon the Swanee River. And then Turkey in the Straw, of course. Used a lot on ice cream trucks these days. And of course, uh, Dixie. I, th- I believe that song. You ain't just whistling Dixie. Uh, Turkey in the Straw, of course. Uh, it's a song that has uh, roots in, uh, I think, in the minstrel shows. Right? The original song was called Zip Coon or Old Zip Coon. So, yeah. And then when you, so you just think about that when you hear it on ice cream trucks. Let me see. Can we hear an ice cream truck doing that? Ice cream truck, turkey in the straw. Right? Yeah, this should be it, right? This is not from 1923. This is some sort of ice cream truck. (laughs) Oh, wait. Here we go. Right? You You know this, right? See, I can mix the two together. Yes, big ice cream song um, from 19th century minstrel shows. Uh, the authorship of the song has been claimed by George Washington Dixon. Zip Coon. Yikes. Anyway, uh, listen, 1923 is a treasure trove of, of music, as we're learning here on Department 23 on the show of shows here. I like the show of shows. It makes me think outside the box. I'm going to figure out what else we're going to hear here. All right, here's the next one. Way out west, many moons ago, lived an Indian chief named Holcomb. Chief Holcomb, Chief Holcomb, he had a great big pull. He was a hope from Holcomb, oh, but how that joke would soak him. He choked him, he broke him, his middle name was Bull. He became so famous, he went down in history. Holcomb is a byword, now you see. Chief Holcomb, Chief Holcomb, he always fooled him when he ruled him. And today, they do the same, they play the game with Holcomb. Just Holcomb, the wise words always soak him. Indians and you meet them every day Who must have been related to Chief Holcomb in a way They always seem to get the dough And how they do it we don't know Holcomb, boys that's all It's Holcomb, it's Holcomb Down at the beaches you see peaches on the sand In fancy dress that more or less is Holcomb Nice Holcomb, their suits, they never soak them, they just pose around and soar. If they went in the water, why the panic would be on, 
for you can bet if they got wet their beauty would be gone. And when they make that homeward trip, their lovely shape goes in a grip. Hokum, boy, that's Chief Hokum, uh, that is uh, by uh, Furman and Nash, a tenor and baritone, and uh, that song is by Harry Von Tilzer. And th- I mean, this is one of those songs about a, an Indian chief. I, I, I don't find it particularly objectionable. You know, I know these days, who knows what people are going to think, but I, I like that song, Hokum, Chief Hokum. I actually found the uh, the sheet music, and it shows an Indian chief smoking a cigar. Yeah, there it is. Look at that. Harry Von Tilzer Music Publishers. Yeah. It's a pretty good song. So what is hokum? It's an interesting word. It, 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 it's a, it's attested to from 1917, only a few years earlier than this. Theater slang for melodramatic, exaggerated acting. Uh, probably uh, probably uh, formed on a model of bunkum. See the word bunk. Also perhaps influenced by the, the term hocus pocus. And then bunk is it means nonsense, so yeah. So so hokum is that what it really means? Like a bad acting sort of. Let me see. Interesting. Uh, it, yeah, it just means nonsense. Yeah. Uh, trite, sentimental, or unrealistic situations and dialogue in a movie play or piece of writing. Classic B movie hokum. Right. Nonsense. They dismissed such corporate homilies as boardroom hokum. Because it really, it really sort of sounds like a word that would be from the, the Chinook jargon, but I, apparently it's not, it's not sourced from the Chinook jargon. Anyways, there you go. Department 23 is back. Was back. It is now over. I, I like Department 23. If I, if I had more time and energy, I, I, think, I think Department 23 would be a cool show just to kind of dig deep into 1923. I like it. Back to you, PQ. Oh, I love that. That was just... Oh, I, that that old music, and I I may be just violating copyrights left and right because I keep thinking it's 1924. We can do up to not 1923, but I I don't know. And I'm going ahead, and luckily so far nobody has come and slapped me with some sort of legal. Oh, that, I am a confused man. But I am an appreciator, and maybe that carries me through all of this. Oh, I don't even know anymore. The damage I may have done to my brain, living a life of, uh, well, the lifestyle that I have led up till recently, 
is definitely not one I would recommend, especially at the levels I was carrying it. And without, you know, I, I, as my show, I could do a show that's all about, hey, kids, don't do drugs. And yeah, that's probably one of the best ideas that I could instill in anyone, even the so-called harmless marijuana that I have spent years defend. Oh, it does it. It's not. Believe me, whatever. Uh, no, I did not uh, have a near-death experience withdrawing off of marijuana. But boy, it was no fun, and I wouldn't recommend it to anybody as uh, a process to go through. And oh boy, uh, I am not going to do that. Uh, what I am going to do is we have these hosts that uh, are not really on sub. Gene Shepard, of course, is the man without whom maybe the Overnightscape and the Overnightscape Central and the Overnightscape Underground would never have happened or would be very different fish. Because before Frank discovered Gene Shepard, I think he was still prone to do radio and programs and maybe even talk a lot and do monologues. And Gene Shepard codified that. But what we're going to hear is a uh, Gene Shepard monologue type thing. He would, from time to time, be a guest on a uh, fellow host on WOR radio, Long John Nebel's show. And Long John Nebel, he was real night radio. I don't think he did shows very often, if ever, during any kind of daytime hours. He would do night radio and all night long. In fact, when he retired, he was doing a thing on mutual radio that became Larry King, who became literally the king of late night radio for many years at that point. Uh, it, it was Long John Nebel in the middle of the night. If you woke up at two o'clock in the morning in most places in the United States and tuned in your radio, you might have caught Long John Nebel. He specialized in the offbeat, especially the paranormal, uh, like Art Bell would do later and many other hosts do today. But he was a skeptic, and he would be so strong, and he would bring people on and let them talk, even encourage them, but he, he was far more skeptical than anybody I hear on the radio today doing paranormal radio. I mean, I would like to believe all of these things. The Loch Ness Monster for years I thought was a real thing, and I'm pretty sure now, eh, Bigfoot, UFOs, uh, ghosts, all of these things I really felt might be real. And now as I get older, I've become more and more skeptical. But that's not the point. What I have here is not short, but it is Gene Shepard and Long John Nebel together on Long John Nebel's show for your show of shows episode of the Overnight Scape Central. Appreciate this, if you will.
there. We're back again. My name, Long John Neville. We're around a lot of times during the day. And uh, I've invited a good friend of mine who uh, one time we worked together, and he's been on with me at this station many times. His name, Gene Shepard. And uh, Gene is responsible for a lot of words in uh, Playboy and in books, and uh, certainly uh, millions of words on radio. He's a broadcaster, actor, author, and uh, in fact, uh, you're rather fortunate if you didn't have the, the fin to go out and buy the hardcover book, you can go for an ace now, actually a little less. You, you can go for six bits, 75 cents, and you can have the book. And I'll tell you one thing, not because he's here. It's really a great book. It's titled, In God We Trust, All Others Pay Cash. And, uh, you know, this is Shepherd at his best. So we hope that you'll be able to pick up uh, your copy, and it's a Bantam book. Well, let me see. We were sitting, no, you were sitting, judging the beauty contest. <laughs> oh, John. John, you're an evil man. Yes, sir. You know, I think that's one of the reasons why you're so successful. Because I'm evil. I think evil men win in the end. They always do. Really? I thought it was the nice guy. Oh, that's the old days. Really? Oh, no more? Sure. We, we all know that now evil pays off almost as well as push-ups. Well, push-ups do nothing except give you muscle. <laughs> and then what can you do? You can go over to a guy who is weak but wealthy and has barbells, and he can't lift them up to let the maid dust underneath him, so you can pick up a jump for lifting the barbells. That's how, all you can do it with muscle. How long has it been since you kicked sand in the face of a bully at the beach? I was always the guy with the sand in my eyes. You were the guy with the girl on the blanket? That's right, and he took my girl away from me. The Charles Atlas... Student came over and kicked the sand in your face. That's right. That's right. And I wound up being a Howard Bear of the night people. Say, I understand a uh, a young lady called you today because she called me afterwards and she wanted to know what my sleep habits were. I just was wondering, wasn't isn't that a little personal? Well, yes, you know the young in, lady. in some ways. It right. depends on what she asks about your sleep. I said, well, she inquired. She I mean, whether me it's a solo. I see. She told me that, that she had talked to you about a half an hour before she talked to me. Yes, that's right. From and, town and country. She, she, said, she asked me whether or not I thought, uh, whether I knew anybody who suffered from insomnia. That's right. That's her opening line with me, too. I think she had it on tape. Yeah, and I said, what do you mean suffer? I think people who have insomnia are fortunate because they sleep less than most people, and hence they live more lives. They, they live more time. I wish I could have called you first and gotten the line and given it to her myself. It's a beautiful line. Well, I, I think that. it's true. I think I think a guy who sleeps 12 hours a day literally sleeps half of his life away. Actually sleeps half. Ah, there he is. Good morning. Nice to see you. Nice you could get up. Just woke up now, yes. Uh, Santa Teller. Well, we're just talking about insomnia. He looks yeah. like a man that does not suffer from it. No. I have cautionaritis, which yeah. you know what that is. Well, it's you right out there. Is that you... Want to sit in? Oh, that's one of them right. Armenians. Right. Mm -hmm. No. Bob Kachner, Robert Kachner. You stand. Oh, sure. You don't stand. He's, yeah. he's an editor. He's a writer. He's a managing editor. <laughs> I know what that means. It's the worst kind. I deal with them all the time. How are you doing? Fine. Fine. Well, I'm glad that you could join us, too. Well, I'm honored. Uh -huh. Here we are, all of us. And now we'll bow our head in a moment of... And then in a few moments, the spirit will appear in the table right. and blow the bugle. <laughs> that's right. And, and we'll be in business. The trumpet is never a bugle. It's a trumpet when you're talking about spiritualism. 
Isn't that the Hindu gap? Oh, no, no. That's done by many people in the 80s and the 70s right here in New York. They, uh, there are many spiritualist meetings that are conducted right here in Manhattan. And Check this light in the kids' down. Well, John, I've heard your show described as a, as a form of spiritualist meeting. Really? Yeah. Tell me about that. Kind of a mystical gathering of free spirits of one kind or another every night. They commune, and mostly with their navels. It's mm -hmm. kind of exciting. Do you know, did you have the guru on, or whatever? What's his the name? The guru is guru. here today. Yeah, today. The he was Maharishi in the building. Mahesh, I think it's <laughs> Mahesh Guru. And uh, everybody's going to him. Guess who he sent down to interview him this morning? Reverend David Poland. Yes. Uh, one David religionist Poland. talks to another religionist. You know, I, I've been listening to him, and everything he says sounds like the stuff that used to be on the bottom of the calendars that my mother had. You know, be kind. Well, tell him, oh, uh, yes, sir. Things like, uh, think good thoughts. Was that from mm -hmm. Father John's medicine? No, actually, <laughs> no, it was St. Joseph's White Sab. Oh, yes. Yes, yes. I used to sell it myself. <laughs> can't get it past me. I used to sell it myself, and that's the first time I got my Boy Scout knife. Well, Jared, I kind of lean 16, towards... Uh, Sixteen of those metal containers of the Great Sab which uh, took the pain from a bunion, and also if you burn yourself or scald yourself with hot water or anything like that, instead of using ordinary butter, you'd use white sand. And uh, that's, of course, you, that's cloverine white sand. You're, hey, you're right. You're right. It is cloverine. Right. It was Try to get a Daisy BB gum, but never could. Oh, no, I, was, I went for the pony. You did? Yeah. Never made it, though, no, did you? No, of course not. Did Didn't you at least get, get a syrup? The, no. I was <laughs> going to say the whole heart is put there. They never made it, huh? No, uh, uh, you're talking... Have you got any more of the salve left? Because I could, you know, buy a few... John, I sent off that coupon that appeared in the Hearst paper in Chicago. You know, the, the Chicago Herald uh, Examiner, I believe it was in those days. And uh, it was in the funny papers. You know, and at the bottom of the funnies it said, Kids, win a pony. Sell white cloverine salve. And this is one of the first traumatic experiences I ever had in the world of, of salesmanship. Mm -hmm. It was at that moment, after I got my white cloverine salve, and I made my first tour of the neighborhood. And, the, you know, they had this little blurb that said, Your friends and neighbors will be excitedly awaiting the arrival of you with your white clovering sap because they all need it for the lumbago. Mm. Use me, Ed. <laughs> I never have met anybody with lumbago, but I, I, I went out with my white clovering sap, and the temperature was five below. And a pony in your mind. A pony in my mind, mm. and I went up to Mr. Bruner, knocked on the door, and I said, I've got white clovering sap for sap. He looked at me. Don't want none. And the door closed. I went next door. And there was Mrs. Anderson. I knocked on the door. I said, "I'm here with your white clothing sap." They, they even sent you a salesmanship booklet. It says, "Never say to people, do you want white clothing sap?" You say, "I'm here with your white clothing sap." Mm -hmm. And she looked at me and she says, "White what?" I said, "Clothing sap." She said, "I thought you said oleomargarine." <laughs> She says, what do you do with it? I says, well, it's for a lumbago. She says, well, he doesn't live here anymore. <laughs> Gosh, I only saw the Saturday evening post. <laughs> no, I never, you know, as a matter of fact, my old man got so bugged, he sent the rest of the case back to the white clover and sap people. And when he discovered that I was trying for a pony, he gave this long look at me and says, if you win a pony, I'll break your neck. <laughs> Did you live in an apartment at the time? We lived in <laughs> just a <laughs> Did you ever read his book, In God We Trust? No, I haven't. Really, it is excellent. It is excellent. I got the original. Uh, hard yeah, cover. we got the hardcover. 
this is the paperback, and, and not because Gene is here, but it's really a... Oh. Did you ever read any of his things in the Playboy? Playboy stuff, no. yes. yes. Well, yeah. a lot of this... It's uh, as a matter of fact, yeah. uh, uh, this, the manuscript of this novel was first seen by Playboy, and the pieces you read in Playboy or were that. chapters out of the novel. Oh, I see. That's that, the way. They never the said that in Playboy. Yes, they did. Did they? Oh, yeah. Yeah, two of the two of the chapters. Not in the centerfold. No, they don't say anything in the center. The centerfold says all it has to say. You just shake that magazine and it comes flopping out. That's right. <laughs> you don't even have to open Playboy. Do you do you uh, tape these or do you write them? I've often wondered. Whether oh no, they're written. They have are. Have you written. ever seen a tape transcribed? Yeah, no. Well, but I've heard on. you too. Uh, you know, for hours at a stretch. No, you know one of the sounds right. Well, you see. Uh, it, it, that's the, that's something that I've always aimed at in writing is to get. I feel that writing is a substitute for speech. No matter how you write, you're really substituting for a man talking to you. Even in the case of of, uh, of a so-called classical writing, you're using a kind of. Uh, it's not supposed to be conversation, though. No, that's not the same as speech. Conversation implies a give and take. Uh, it's a monologue. Mm -hmm. And uh, I have worked in my writing. It's taken me a long time, actually, professional writing, 10 to 12 years, to attempt to get the same feel as a man literally act well, actually talking to you. And yeah, so a lot of yeah. people reading it, they say, well, you must have taped that. But this is the last thing you can do. Well, I thought, I, my, my first thought when I, when I read some of the Playboy stuff is that you taped it first, and then no. got a transcript, and then went Not over Not a bit it. of it, no. As a matter of fact, the way it, well, the way I write, uh, if I'm going to write, say, a short story that doesn't have any connection with something before mm -hmm. and after a, a specific piece, I'll think of an idea, and it's usually a story that I may have tried on the air just to get the feel of it myself, and then after that, uh, I'll I'll first uh, write a a loose, a very loose running. I suppose you can call it a draft. Mm -hmm. And then I begin to expand it. And then after I expand the draft until it gets to be maybe 500 pages, I cut it back to the original eight. <laughs> eight pages from yeah, 500 pages? Yeah. You must uh, not worry about your own feelings. Oh, no. Cut I'm them. ruthless. I, I, I really I have a problem. I was just, I'm very happy to give whatever I write to somebody else. You know, to another editor who can chop it down, and it hurts me to see somebody else cut it. But I'd rather him do it than me. Well, you know, I, I found I found that that many writers are that way, and and uh, the way it, I'm fortunate in that uh, I work so hard at editing my work that I have never yet had a piece appear in Playboy, and I've had maybe 15 pieces so far in Playboy, major short stories, and I've never yet had one piece that the editors edited. I've really? never had one word removed. No, that's remarkable. Uh, usually an editor, because I am one now, will edit it just I, 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 I say that in the introductions. Now, you don't have to do that. He oh, well, you know, I, just in case <laughs> minds, have, minds have wandered three minutes ago. That's right. You're talking down yeah. to you now. Believe no, no, no. But he editors too, Gene. Really. No, really, editors do uh, have a tendency, regardless of the, the perfection of the prose that they get, they still want to get their blue pencil. Well, I have I have a remarkable editor. It's a guy at uh, at Playboy named Murray Fisher. He's a senior editor there, and 
Murray said, and, and when we first started all this work, and he found that I, I was that way. I, I don't like to see myself writing something that secretly inside my mind, if I were an editor, I would cut out. <laughs> really that way, you know. So, so when he when he discovered that, Murray said, "Look," he said, uh, he said, "You just do it." And and he said, "If if I want any cuts made for space problems that may conceivably arise, mm -hmm. he says I'll simply send your your proofs back and you do it." He says, "I don't want to mess with it." He said, "Because the rhythm of speech that you get into your work is something that you right. can do." He said, "I can't do it." He said, yeah. "I wonder how Thomas Wolfe felt then." When you know he gave a manuscript to his uh, agent, his editor, uh, I forgot Maxwell Perkins. Max Perkins, you know, ten thousand pages, and he had it cut down to the bare bones. Well, of he, Perkins. you know, I don't think what Max Perkins did really was editing. What I thought he did was organizing. I think he took a whole mass of stuff and just simply and threw them downstairs or something. Well, yeah, stuff. he just cut out like reams of it, but didn't change it. To me, editing is changing the beat and the rhythm. But also cutting or condensing, and in some cases enlarging or embellishing. Lots well, of I things think sneaky that, editors do. That's a good I question. I'd, I'd, I'd like to, you know, the, the, I think there's two kinds of editing. I think there is the cutting and the uh, snipping editor, and then there's the editor who says, why don't you use a uh, uh, hot diggity dog instead of oh Shaw? Well, that's what... Uh, that's a writer. He's, that's he's, right. Well, uh, Ross of The New Yorker did that. He was he was known. He was, uh, I guess, most people considered him one of the greatest editors. But uh, he would do a lot more than either cut or condense in some way. He would change words. Well, I, you know, personally, Bob, I think this is why that magazine always has had a kind of, uh, I think, me and I, and I enjoyed a lot of stuff that's been in the New Yorker, but they've always had a kind of homogenous sound. That's very true. That they that wanted be white, yeah. But I, no. as a writer, that would, that would bug me. I, I, writing for Playboy, for example, mm -hmm. I'll, I'll appear in one part of the magazine, and on the next part, right next to me, there'll be a short story by, say, Herb Gold. Yeah, and well, they want are, that difference. But yeah, they, they want that right. constant dynamic difference between each piece. Well, the New Yorker, of course, they, they've got a stable of people over there. And when you're a New Yorker writer, when you're typed as a New Yorker writer, you're always a New Yorker writer. Yeah, the, it's reason. usually a lady with three names or an Italian. <laughs> well, of course, what, I, what bothers me most about New Yorker stories is that I have to wait until the end to find out who wrote it. Oh, not of, really. They're you can look. Like, you can always look. Yeah. That's, that's not. That's cheating. You, that's you're supposed cheap. to figure out in the first couple of paragraphs who wrote it. Well, you can always tell a John Cheever story. He always, he, his story is almost always concerned with the same people. And a typical ending of a John Cheever story is, and the seven fifteen pulled into Wyandotte Circle, and Mr. Smothers slowly mounted the steps. Period. Yes. And you can see, you can read the whole story. You don't even have to read That's it. That's right. This whole thing, you know, Mr. Smothers sad, Mr. Smothers, his life has been wasted. Now he's in love with the babysitter. <laughs> you could always tell a S.J. Perlman story, too, by the, usually it's a news clip. As yeah, a lead. at the beginning. Yeah, that he takes off. Well, Perlman's style is, is really different than anybody else. But I'd be disturbing you, Mr. Cox, if I'd ask you for just a moment to permit me to take care of some business. Well, that's still uh, being uh, filed by large numbers of lady librarians all across the country under religious books. I wouldn't know. <laughs> I'm serious. I'm right next to uh, Mahatma Gandhi. In the Valley of the Dalles? <laughs> Religion are. <laughs> David Pauling, the great religious... Do you know Dave Pauling? Great humor writer? Yeah. No. Oh, 
Uh, uh, Reverend Poling is a... Uh, really, no, he's a delightful gentleman. He uh, He's really done an awful lot for the work that he's keenly interested in. That's true, very true. Right. Absolutely. What is his work? Oh. I've talked with him for four or five hours and was never able to discover what it is. <laughs> he's done a lot but of he's dedicated more than most people would put in yes, for that kind of money. money. Like Judge Puffles. <laughs> he's very loyal. Like he is. That's, 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 that's a wonderful word. I'm glad that you employed that tonight to describe the great uh, David Cohen. We're all very big fans of his. Mm-hmm. And some night we hope that you will be able to join us when well, he is delivering one of his spiritual messages. Mm. He certainly... Well, I like a spiritual message. He speaks with tongues. Yes, he does. I yes. like rye bread, too. All right, we'll have some of that a little later. Mustard right. on a good spiritual message, marinate it. That's right. Very you, you have it all made. You have it all made. Just catch it. This is your golden opportunity. Is it to, to do what? I was just stroking my mustache. Well, that's <laughs> about all you can do, I guess, if you... No, we, we were mentioning during the break and something I, I couldn't understand about the way Playboy structures its magazine, that they seem, no matter what kind of material is written, they always put in front of it, uh, say, Gene Shepard, and then there's a slash that says humor, and then so Herbert Gold slash fiction, uh, somebody else slash article. It seemed to me that anybody who reads it is going to know without telling me. I don't have to be told that you're going to write humor. I don't care. I'll read it, and I'll judge for myself whether it's humor or one thing or another. Why? Why would they do a thing like that? Well, I I, uh, I really don't have any uh, answer to that, Bob. I, no. I've argued. In fact, uh, uh, that that point has come up a couple times in, in discussion with my editor as to what they're going to put over a piece, and uh, I think it goes back to the to the uh, early days of the magazine. It's a thing that that was put in very early when. Uh, when Playboy consisted in the earliest days. Now, if you've ever seen, you know, some of the early Playboy issues, like issue number one or two, are really expensive collector items today. They really, uh, because... I don't even recall them anymore. Well, there weren't many printed, and of course, Playboy's gone on to become a worldwide phenomenon, and they, it is really a valuable collector's item now, but if you go back to those magazines, you'll see that they have these blocks, but the reason they used them then was because... The magazine was new, and they couldn't even afford, uh, you might say, uh, new writing. And so they would publish uh, a classic. Yeah, the Ribbles tale. Exactly. Yeah. So they would put things over the top, uh, more or less to, to describe why they're using it. They would have a Ribbled classic, mm, and right, it would be right. de Maupassant. Then they would have something like... Uh, uh, great interviews, yeah. and it would be a reprint of an interview that appeared somewhere. Because in the early days, nobody much cared what was written in Playboy. Well, see, Hefner's a very sentimental type, <laughs> curiously enough. He really is. And and a thing like that... I've heard him described in many ways. But never, never sentimental. sentimental. <laughs> I'm sorry. I know him very well. Uh, it runs through his magazine. Where do you find sentimentality in, the, in Playboy? Well, have you ever read my stuff? That's you. It's Gene No, it, he's publishing it. Yes, but he's publishing Gene Shepard. Yeah, but the New Yorker wouldn't. All right, the New Yorker may not... Now, the New Yorker publishes Woody They're Allen. They're but not sentimental. They both publish Woody Allen. Allen. They see? do? Yeah, yeah, but I don't think... I think there's no... Absolutely no... Uh, to me, Allen is is uh, hardcore Gagsville. And uh, to me, that has nothing to do with, with human emotions or 
one way or the other. It's a whole series of he-she jokes. Right, but they're great, but they're great jokes. Yeah, got yeah. Some, part of, well, some are. He know. deals with reminiscences from time to time. I don't know how, how true they are, but they always seem to be based somewhere in the past. Well, maybe that's sentimentality. Mm-hmm. No, I, I, we're not discussing my work. We're discussing Hefner. And I, and I think that, that in my work, I think, is anti-sentimental. As a matter of fact, if you ever really read it, you realize that it's a put-down of all the things which most people think it it stands for. Mm. It's anti-nostalgic writing. Does, does Hefner know that? Oh, sure. <laughs> well, he loves it. Let me ask you something. Well, yeah, why would this impression get out that Hefner is this kind of ignorant slob? Not ignorant slob. No. Good heavens, no. no. I mean, nobody could do what he's done. No, I mean, he, he understands what he's doing, too. Yeah, but he's a... You know, look, the impression that I have of you, Hefner, is one of the great business minds of our time in the journalistic field. A man has become a multimillionaire, not only with a magazine, but with merchandising every possible aspect of the magazine. He's he's taken a formula that's been around, you know, basic formula, girls and all, that started out, and today it, they pay more yeah, for fiction than anybody else in the country. I say this, uh, I'm sorry, Sandy, you know, I think this is a subtle form of put-down. because you It's not never, a put-down. Yes, no. it is, because you would never say about Harold Ross that he's a great businessman, because after all, That's that right. magazine became a fabulous commercial success during his day, Ross. As editor. Well, he, wrote, he yeah. created the magazine, just like Hef created the Playboy. But the kind of subtle put-down of a Hefner would be, well, he's a, a great businessman. He, he was essentially and began as a man who created a magazine, and that magazine became successful because it was a good magazine. Right. What made it good uh, at the time? It's, it's, yeah. it's good now, but it was good then. I had, until about two years ago, you talked about the early issues of Playboy. I had a classic collector's item, which somebody swiped from me, including the portfolio of nude shots of uh, Anita Ekberg. Remember that? The, uh, some yeah, sculpture. Don't, uh, see, don't confuse the magazine with its port- photography. But what? originally, it got, it didn't get the coverage no. on no, the basis of the girls, originally. I'm sorry, there were a thousand, this is one of the great myths, uh, <coughs> around. There were dozens of girly magazines around at the time, Playboy, and, and by the way, even magazines that went much further as far as nudity than Absolutely. Playboy. That's true. Right. So, uh, the idea that it made it on, on the girls, it, it only made it with people who didn't read it. And so the people who read the magazine know that they didn't buy it for the girls, but the people who saw the magazine and didn't read it assumed it was the girls. Did Hefner start off, the apocryphal story that he started off with like a 1000 or $2,000, do you have any idea if that is really true? Yes, I'll tell you exactly how it yeah. started. Uh, Hefner was working, he worked a couple of places in uh, Chicago, <coughs> and by the way, most of the people who created the magazine are from and around Chicago. Uh, my old friend Shelley Silverstein, yeah. Leroy Neiman, the artist. Uh, Spec is he from uh, Chicago? No. Uh, Spec came with the magazine comparatively late in its career. The magazine already was a raging success when Spec joined it. Uh, Hef, of course. Jack Kessie, the editor under Hefner. And when he started this magazine, Hefner was working at the time, at the, at the immediate time. He was working for Esquire in yeah. the, the Chicago office. And he had a lot of, uh, he felt that, that the magazine was old-fashioned. Esquire's constant reiteration of the Fitzgerald, uh, the Hemingway. Yeah. It, it was in love with the 30s, which, by the way, it still pretty much remains, if you read the magazine. And he said, this is not the 30s, and, and uh, there are a lot of writers writing around today. They're just not being published because they're today. So Hef got, he had 
around $6,000 of his own money. He borrowed another tool, and he created the magazine, and his, the first issues were laid out in the living room of his house on the northwest side of Chicago, all over the, the floor. He pinned them up. Oh. And you know he works that way today? I read that, yes. In his, in his room, in the, in the Hefner mansion, uh, his room really, in a sense, is a, it's just where he does his work. And you see all over the walls, anytime you visit Hef, he's got the next issue of Playboy, the one he's working on currently, pinned on the walls. Same way as I do in the, well, I don't have a mansion, a 23-room uh, penthouse right next to Bob Kochner's 63-room. And I have all these tanks <laughs> up there, all pinned up on the wall, ready to be... <laughs> Uh, put well, a man of, of such vast uh, output as you, John, we've got to have <laughs> right, a Jack Keene is just ready to put them all together. Vast output. We're back again. Robert Kochner is with us, Sanford Teller, and Gene Shepard. My name, Long John Neville. So I'd like to remind you, although I haven't seen it, somebody told me that this Sunday there's a piece in the New York Sunday News by Ben Gross, who's the dean of radio... And uh, TV editors, the man who wrote the book, I Looked and I Listened, that was published by Random House. And uh, and the story is going to be in Sunday's paper. You so, know, ben, ben is a real New York landmark. Oh, he yes, is. yes, he really is. Great man. He's, he's, he's of that, that, that whole crew that New York has produced these, these fantastic <laughs> columnists over the years. Guys like O.O. McIntyre, mm -hmm. Gross. Yeah, that whole yeah. crowd. He's, he's one of them. You know, I was talking the other day with somebody, uh, uh, a young man. See, this will even hurt you, Bob. Younger than I Yeah, that's oh, right. No. You know, no, I know. <laughs> and, you know, we, we usually talk about young men, you know, 30, 35, but uh, I'm talking about a younger man. He was mentioning something about ambitions. And then... Another young man came in to see me today, Duke Osler, that's Will's son, yes. and he is a reporter on a Bridgeport newspaper, and I guess Duke is about uh, in 22, 23, something like that, and a couple of summers, Duke used to work for me over at O.R. Yeah, there. I remember that. He'd come yeah. in during the summer months and work at nights. And with, he's Paris, with Paris Lamont. Well, that's right, yeah, yeah. with Paris Lamont and a couple of the others around. But the point I'm trying to make is this, that it seems so many guys, and maybe because I am the older member of the group tonight. Every every night I'm on, I'm <laughs> yeah. the older member of the group. I'm getting to notice that. That's John, right. Uh, so many guys make excuses. You're talking about Hefner. This is what reminds me. Always, you know, a lot of parents, and I think the parents make this mistake. They'll tell their, their children, their, their sons in particular, you got to crawl before you walk. And you know you've got it made. You know you're you're a, you've got your whole life ahead of you. Well, I imagine that some guy, seventy or seventy-five, who may be seated opposite me as a guest one night, and uh, he would say to me, "You've got your whole life ahead of you. You're a kid." Well, I am a kid compared to a guy seventy-five. But I think that Hefner was a man who I've never met, incidentally. I think Hefner had something that only successful guys have. And that is a drive to do it. He was not going to be conned or lulled into saying, you know, look, take it easy. You know, you, you crawl before you walk. Start and, small. And, you're, and yeah, start small. And you're young. You've got the whole world ahead of you. 
Well, I wouldn't even say this to a 16-year-old kid that he has the world ahead of him, because today, we had Robert Metzon, who was with the New York Times. He writes a financial column for the New York Times five days a week, and he was on the other night with us. And he was telling me some things that were pretty exciting to me, that in the mutual fund market today, there are about three or four guys. There's one rather old man who has been successful in the last year and a half. He's 32. The other two guys, one yeah. is 25 and one is 27. Now, I'm not talking about guys who got a few bucks together yeah. and invested. I'm talking about guys who have successful story <laughs> mutual funds. So there you sit opposite me. <laughs> this older man, this managing editor. <laughs> and instead of being out there hustling and... You know, you'll wind up being a Sanford teller. I plan to retire in If only that were true. You know how fortunate he would be. He's gone far. Remember one thing. You're missing the point here, John. He is on the Long John Show. That's right. Thank you. That's true. Four men who've been on the Long John Show in the last five years have been assassinated. So don't, I would not make it. It's true. I think the... Wait a minute, Sandy. I think to be assassinated is the ultimate compliment. Assassination instead of murder. You're right. You do not assassinate Charlie Applebaum. That's right. You kill him. But I think this is this is one of the reasons why why there are Hefners and... Uh, and, you know, there's another guy that I think of, and, and don't, you know, say just because this old man had a few bucks. Actually, there wasn't a, a fortune. It was a fortune compared to what we may have at the present time. And that's Howard Hughes. You know, the whole Howard Hughes thing, I think, was about $100,000 yeah. or $150,000. There wasn't much money there at all. That's no, right. compared to what he made of it. Right. Yeah, he took it. And made now, this it. was a guy that didn't play games. He was going to make it. And... Whether that was a hang-up with him or what it was, I don't know. I'm not. But you know, in, John, when you use may, may, I, may I interrupt you here for a minute? You use in the, uh, You know, I think that Hefner and people like that type, Hefner and uh, Hughes, Howard Hughes, that type, Henry Luce. Yeah, but yeah. these people are. When you say make it, now I think the average ordinary walking around citizen, when when you use the word make it, he, money. He thinks in terms of money. No, I don't. No, I'm well, not no, I'm talking. Terms. No, we, we got to explain terms here. That a guy like Hefner, to him, and it's, it's going to sound very strange to a lot of people who think that way, uh, money is of no consequence to him. It's the game he's playing. He, it's the, he's so fascinated and excited by all the things he does, and he does them so well. He, he is truly, by the way, a business genius. He, he, he knows how to do these things. And so the natural increment of it is money. It's like a gambler. He, he plays with chips. He doesn't think in terms of money. And, and, and so a guy like Hughes is, he loves this whole big game. It's like, it's like, uh, they're, 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 in a, in a way, they're very much like the character that, uh, Ian Fleming created. They're James Bonds. Uh, these are adventurers. And, and as a matter of fact, Hefner, uh, Hefner, one night, I remember we were sitting around in, in the kitchen. He, he loves to come down at four o'clock in the morning and sit there unshaven, wearing his bathrobe and uh, sit around with a few of his old friends who were with the magazine in the early days. And one night he said, we're sitting there eating pumpkin pie, which he happens to have a thing for him. <laughs> he, says, uh, he says, you know, what I really enjoy, he says, I enjoy guys who will, 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 will risk it all. He says, you know, he says, I will, I will go for a guy. He says, I like people who will say, why write for the Chelsea Shopping News? I'm going to send it in to, 
he'll risk total humiliation. And 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 I and I I said, well, Hef, you know, anybody that will go out on the kind of financial limbs that Hefner will, he'll loot like he started. Remember Showbiz Illustrated? Yes, yes, I. It's the only flop, really. Yeah, but but the point is, he will he will and he'll quit. You see, he'll lose a half a million dollars on a thing like that, or maybe a million. And you will write a good million on that. Yeah, I know it. You think think a lot of money? This will destroy a lot of men. With Hefner, he says, well, you win some, mm. you lose a couple. John pointed out about a, about maybe a year ago that if Joe Schultz, the corner grocer, goes into bankruptcy for 50, let's say $500 or $1,000, it's hard for him to get credit. But if an international financier, you know, who's dropped $10 million and is bankrupt, he gets it again. Always his partners in line to be with this guy because he was an operator who could, who could build up a... Uh, you know, John, oh, there's, there's certain guys, though... Uh, now, when I say a, a Howard Hughes or a or a Hefner, how about a Ralph Kaufman or a or a Petty? Mm-hmm. Uh, or Ralph Kaufman, Kaufman especially. Yeah, Ralph Kaufman and Cleveland. Getty, Getty is one. Getty is He's, one. Now yep. you see that there's a difference between these men. Man, and Getty cares about money, though. Well, now wait a minute. You see, <laughs> Getty Getty cares about money because money represents the chips that show he's won the game, uh, and I think. That we shouldn't confuse it with, uh, confuse these guys with guys who will come along and briefly make a big fortune, let's say, in the uh, construction business, overextend themselves, and 20 minutes later they're either in jail or they're back in Indianapolis with their hot dog stand. Now, a guy like Hefner works in all directions. In short, he w- he's liable to tomorrow morning say, you know what we ought to do? We ought to start uh, an airline. And he will throw $2 million into this thing. He's done he, that. He's bought a plane. That's right. right. He's bought a commercial jet plane. Don't no. be surprised no. if he doesn't come up with an airline. I would not be. You're right. You're right. You know, that reminds me of, of uh, my yeah. director, Howard Baer. Howard Baer, for a long while, when he was taking people on the tours around NBC, he just decided he wouldn't do it until the uniform was getting tighter and tighter and tighter. <laughs> and then he, you know, he decided to discard it. And he worked his way up to the top. Really. He you mean was your show? The RCA building, though, for a while. I mean, the top floor. Got right on the top floor. Went all the way up. <laughs> Amen. Ah, uh, here we are. The oral back again. Yes. Bless you real good. Uh, here we are back again there. with our guest. One of his favorite, one of my favorite lines of his is, is this one where he says, Friends, I want you to just reach out now and lay your hands on that radio. Yes. <laughs> oral. That's what I said, Oral Roberts. Oh, yeah, yeah. No, I said Oral. No, he changed. Lay your hands on that radio of yours, and you feel that heat coming up through your knuckle bones, coming up through your elbow joints. Friends, that is electronic love I'm sending out your way. I'm digging down right now. I want to hear Love offering, right? Something we've got to do here. Or right in front of the television screen. A stone's throw from the famous Mountain Valley Spring. In the health resort region of Hot Springs, Arkansas, there's another spring whose water is delicious. Yet neither it nor any other spring has attained the widespread demand of Mountain Valley water. The difference is, there's something exceptional about Mountain Valley water. And uh, if you said it was low in sodium, or the natural purity of Mountain Valley water you wouldn't have all the answer 
Other springs claim these, yet don't fill the bill. Believe me when I tell you this, that there's something exceptional. And complete satisfaction is what you receive from drinking a marvelous water of proven merit. One hundred years of increasing popularity and the widest acceptance in America. Mountain Valley Water promises that it will be just as good to taste and as good for you every day of your life. Yes, Mountain Valley Water from the famous spring in Hot Springs, Arkansas. Do you know that it's protected by nature from any semblance of urban waste, detergents, pesticides, or other pollutants? This just begins to tell the story of Mountain Valley Water. No water crisis was needed for it to win, friends, because for 100 years, Mountain Valley Water has increased in popularity, and today its acceptance is the widest in America. Now, I would like to send you a booklet that'll give you all of the facts about Mountain Valley Water. Just put Mountain Valley on a card and send it to me, Long John Neville, WNBC, New York 10020. Do that today, please. And I'll send you a brochure. There's no cost, no obligation. Or you can pick up your phone right now and dial Plaza 77210, PL7. 7210. That's an answering service. Do that now. Or put your name and address on a card and send it to me, Long John Neville, WNBC, New York 10020. January 29th, Dr. Joyce Brothers invites you to Radio Premier Week on WNBC, New York. When I say cradle, what do you think of? Protectiveness, comfort, care? Well, that's why T.O. Day, America's leading foot comfort specialist, call their special inner mold shoes cradle inner molds. Cradle inner molds, they pamper your feet whole, protect, cushion, and comfort them to make walking a pleasure again. Cradle inner mold shoes are developed from impressions of your own feet. And they're available in the latest styles for men and women. And they keep your foot problems a secret. But what a difference they can make in your comfort, in your outlook, in your enjoyment of life's worthwhile activities. T.O. Day, that's spelled D-E-Y. They have the entire floor, the third floor of 509 Fifth Avenue. Yes, the home of inner mold shoes, crafted right on the premises to meet your exact needs and tastes. Now, some people get up in the morning and they claim it's going to rain today without even listening to Big Wilson, without even looking out the window. They base this on the fact that they're, that corn, that little sore, aching corn on the small toe hurts this morning. That means it's going to rain. Well, if that's the only way you can tell what the weather's going to be, keep your corn. Or you may have a callus in the ball of the foot. Or a bunion that throbs with pain just like that of a toothache that you you really can't stand the weight of a bedsheet on it. Well, when you go to T.O. Day, you may not be able to tell whether it's going to rain today. But one thing you can do, you can walk with pleasure. Because you'll be wearing shoes that have secret inner molds. T.O. Day, they'll be delighted 
to give you a free shoe analysis, and I mean just that, a free shoe analysis, I'd suggest that you call in advance for an appointment. They'll not try to sell you anything. They'll tell you what it's about and show you. Now, the number to call is MU24790. Murray Hill 2, 4790. Or just send a card to me, Long John Neville, WNBC, New York, 10020, and put T-O-D-D-E-Y on the card, and I'll have a brochure sent to you with all of the facts. Here we are back again with our guests, and we have Sanford Teller with us, of Sanford Teller Public Relations... Communication. Communications. I'm sorry, I've popped it already. Oh, there it goes. Well, back to Ritter and Finn. Robert Kotzner, managing editor of Newspaper Enterprise Association. How's that, Aaron? Excellent. We, in fact, we have Dick Raskin who joined us tonight. Dick is from California, and he plays a little guitar and a couple of other things. And we've got Gene Shepard. Gene wrote the book, In God We Trust, All Others Pay Cash, which was published by Doubleday, but now available in paperback by Bantam Books. You know, I think the worst publicists, except for maybe a half a dozen, are people with book publishers. Mm. Oh, I agree. It's an old-fashioned oh, industry. There's now, still outstanding. Sonia Leventhal of McGraw-Hill. Letty Cotton of Bernard Geis. Uh, Gene Booth of Doubleday. Yeah, there's... Uh... Uh, Abby Brown and her husband, Tom Cassidy. Uh, Terry Garrity. Does a great job. Most of uh, Lisa Kane, yeah, uh, from uh, Harper's. But and 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 I don't like to leave anybody out. I may have probably missed some, but a couple, there, yeah. there are so many. It would take an hour and a half to say those that have no idea, that have never been to a show, mm. that have no idea what happens at the show, who mislead the authors. I don't think they do it intentionally. But they have an idea, because maybe they've heard Barry Gray, mm -hmm. and they figure, if you're on at night, I must be doing the same show that Barry... And, and they, they send the author up for 20 minutes, and a guy comes up and you say, will I be able to get a cab? And you say, gee, I really don't know. We'll try to help you when we leave in the morning. Well, I have to catch the the uh, the 1237 from Grand Central. <laughs> yeah. and, and the guy, he's not putting me on, you know what I mean? He's not trying to be a wise guy or anything. Mm -hmm. But he was told that he would be on for 15 or 20 minutes. At the top of the show. Yeah, at the top of the yeah. show, and, and that's the end of it. Even worse is to, is to run into a, a PR person from a publishing house who has not read the book. That's and, and, and furthermore, uh, completely, uh, it, it, it's, I've seen some very embarrassing moments from <laughs> like that around radio stations where a publicity person will come in and start talking about a book to somebody, and the guy will turn and say, well, it isn't like that at all. I read it. The guy he's yeah. explaining it to knows more about it than he does. Well, I always think that the extent of book promotion, generally speaking, is sending a book to a reviewer. That's as far as it goes. Well, right? I've been around, uh, you know, every time John uh, gives me a chance to go through some of the books, I mean, just to see what the releases, press releases look like and things of that sort. I'm appalled that a major publishers will send out a major book uh, with a form letter pitching it to all radio and TV. And is it form? Oh, sure. I mean, it is so bad. This Some of them are Xerox, yeah. and then and then yeah. they'll put, dear Mr. Neville or dear John. Dear broadcaster. No, yeah, dear, dear broadcaster. I love that. One. <laughs> so they do. Dear, it is, I, communicator. It is. Yeah. Dear broadcaster, and it says, we know this book will be of interest to your particular audience. You know, you know another one. Yeah. Now, can you imagine a show like we do, and a person will send 
if you would be interested, uh, contact us and tell us when you would like the offer and we'll send you a book. In the meantime, they send you the, <laughs> the, the jacket. Yeah, the jacket copy and all and, that. And they, and they want to know whether you're going to be interested. And of course, the jacket has nothing to do with the author. The author has mm. had a thing to say about the jacket. And it's, it's uh, really, there's another gal by the name of Gia Moonjean. Is that it? Gia Moonjean, yeah. Is that She's, first name, last name, both names? I don't know what it is. <laughs> but Sounds great. Right. She, she does yeah. a very, very fine job for Grosset and Dunlap and a couple of other sure. friends. She's a very talented gal. But the gal who really has it and who is in business for herself uh, uh, is Terry Garrity. Oh. She does it. Great, great. Job. Well, we Very talented. Gene, I think we should go into uh, one thing that a lot of people are completely unfamiliar with. I mean, they, you know, some people have been listening to you maybe for two, three, five years, but a lot of people don't know about I Libertine, and I'd, I'd like to have you rehash that story. We've never done it on the air. No, I don't think no, we have. never have, and that, that is a great story. Are you familiar with the I Libertine story? Uh, I have to be refreshed. I don't well, recall it. Well, do it. Can you tell us well, how, how the whole thing started? That's I'll, quite a story. I, uh, this is very strange. It, uh, it was a progression of peculiar events that led to an, uh, an international, in fact, a worldwide story. I'm surprised you don't remember it. Maybe you will remember it when you're refreshed on it. But when I first came to New York, Bob, I was on all night on WOR. And in those I days... To interrupt you, yeah. You started from 11.15 to 11.30. Well, that was very briefly, but but actually, the, when I first... With the handy sandy Andy and the jawbreakers Yeah, and but when I really got started in New York, uh, I mean, I got on, and I was on uh, all night, really. I was on from midnight till 5 in the morning. That's familiar. Yeah. And, well, actually, uh, John played a role in that, that event. It was a very interesting event, and I was on late at night. I was broadcasting from the transmitter at WOR. Right, in Carteret. Yeah, and in those days, I, this this really was a turning point in radio, although at the time nobody really knew it. In those days, radio was a very, very formatized form of entertainment. It was format all the way down the line. And the formats, uh, there were disc jockeys, and they had a they had a stranglehold on the industry. And uh, it really radio really was an, was an adjunct of the music business. And then there were a few newscasters on. And that was about the extent of it. And I, I had come out of the Midwest, and I had an idea that, that radio as a personal form of communication, a personal artistic medium, in other words, to use radio to, 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 to say things and to do things, which have a very personal meaning for me. Mm -hmm. I'm not plugging uh, Pat Boone's records or interviewing some lady who draws pictures on velvet cats. Uh, that uh, I used radio the same way that a writer uses a sheet of paper to say what he has to say about the world. Well, this is very peculiar. This is not, it's not really been done. And I, I was on late at night. And the, the the time was a very peculiar time. It was during the time of Eisenhower, and there was a lot of... It was the beginning, the very beginnings of what later became known as the black comedy period in America. Satire was unknown. There was a lot of comedy. Today we call 
comedy satire. There is really still very little satire around. Most people today call a comic a satirist. Not so. Uh, and also, I don't consider a man who, who does political gags a, a satirist. That's often called a satirist. Mm -hmm. He's really just a polemicist. But I'm on late at night and I'm doing this stuff and, and uh, working away seven days a week and it was hot. It was the middle of summer. And uh, I had become, I was new in New York, and I, had, I suddenly became aware that New York is almost entirely a city that really does run on lists. The first time I really ran into uh, the hit syndrome, that if Brooks Atkinson, who was writing in those days, said a show was a hit, it was a hit. Mm -hmm. If he said it was good, it was good, even if the people who went to see it fell asleep. And they thought they... They were failing both Atkinson. I was fascinated by this, you see. Uh, and in New York, the, the, the ten best dressed people are talked about on the radio all over New York, and television. And they don't, they don't even think about this in Cleveland or Cincinnati. It's a New York phenomenon. And it just began to interest me. And one night, late at night, I'm on the air and I said, you know, has it ever occurred to you, friends, that these lists are compiled by mortals and that they are human just like you are and in fact they have many more access to grain than you. Now we all laugh at say the, the Academy Awards. Have you ever been asked to vote on the best movie? All we do is mm. sit and somebody hands somebody else a statue and that's the best movie of the year. And I said, is it really? <laughs> is it really? You're not supposed to think that way. <laughs> I know it. And I'm doing this stuff late at night. And I says, now, now I says, now I'll carry it even further. I said, we, that no matter who you are in New York, you're influenced by these lists. I said, you, now you may laugh at the one that's in the Daily News because you read the Times. And somehow, if it says the top ten bestsellers in the New York Times, you really can think. You may mm -hmm. never have even seen a copy of those bestsellers. But because it's in the time, it's authentic. I said, has it occurred to you that there's a little guy who is bugged because for four years he was on obituaries and he's always had this dream of being Walter Lippmann 17 years and now he's got this desk and all he does every Monday is call these little schlock book dealers around town and says, oh, what's selling this yeah. week, man? And, and, and I says, now let's take it even further. You'll read this little thing at the bottom. It says, this is... A, a list that is made up of, let's say, 422 authentic books. Yeah. Said, let's go back to the book dealer. And so we go into the bookstore, and here's this guy, this Fred Applerod. He's the book buyer, see? And he bought 500 copies of Who Shot John yes. three months ago, and he's got 497 of them. Yes. So, Boy, there yeah, so there. He, turns, he says to Mr. So-and-so who calls, why, Who Shot John is moving here? I'll tell you, there's nothing like it. I said, four or five other guys say the same thing, and the next thing you know, who shot John is number four. Yes. <laughs> and all the people who believe in, who believe in list rush out like mad and buy it. And then it becomes an authentic. This is so true. Of sure. course it's true. Yeah. Well, people were calling up and they said, this is ridiculous. How can this be? What do you mean? You know, who, uh, this is an authentic list. And I said, all right, I'll tell you what, let's do, friend. And this is three o'clock in the morning. I said, now, the people who believe in lists, are asleep. <laughs> I said, because they get up at 7 o'clock, bright and bushy-tailed to run down to the agency. They buy all the hit show tickets. Yeah. You know, they really love Barbra Streisand and all this. And 
miss it. And anybody who's sitting up here at 3 o'clock in the morning secretly has doubts. <laughs> I mean, it's because a lot of us still got to get up at 8 o'clock in the morning. And why you're sitting here at 3 o'clock in the morning listening to me, I says, there's only two kinds of people, us and them. And they don't know we exist. We're back again. Back to the story of High Liberty. You want to? You really want to hear this? Oh, it's, it's so great, Because yeah. I don't, you know, I don't uh, like to to take over the microphone here. We're all sitting around kidding around tonight, but uh, that story uh, taught me a lesson, Bob, that I'll never forget. Dick, uh, it taught a lot of people a lesson because I was just sitting here talking about things. You know, I, it was a theoretical thing. I remember this was ten years ago when. People did, they, they accepted things like bestseller lists as actually authentic. Uh, the top 40 tunes to a person listening, he says, that, yeah, that must be the top 40. And I had learned a lesson earlier on that. I remember a guy once in Cincinnati who, who uh, by public relations, one thing and another, he had a record on the top 30 tunes in the, quote, Bible of showbiz before it was even published. It had never even been published. Here it was number eight. So all the disc jockeys across the country, you see, would get this Bible and say, well, it must be big in Pittsburgh. I haven't gotten my copy yet. <laughs> well, sure enough, uh, when they turned it out, every DJ in the country played the, 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 uh, played the pants off this record because it was, it was number three and number six. And then it became number one, authentically. Well, the, the public, I guess, uh, is not aware of the chicanery that goes into these lists and what they do mean to books and they mean to films one thing or another. There's millions riding on that. And you and I all know that when millions are riding on things, that's when the when the uh, operations get big. So I'm, I'm doing this thing late at night. And that was simultaneously, Bob, at the time that I created a term. Uh, you know, it's, it's kind of an airy feeling to have created a term that has entered the language. Now, you know, you read terms like uh, hot diggity dog. Can you imagine the guy that first said that? Yeah, whack a ding hoy. Well, no, I mean the one who first said it. He created something that has entered the language. Like, uh, oh gosh, somebody must have said that the first time. Well, I actually created a term that you see on billboards, you read it in page papers all the time, and, uh, and it came about on that show. I'm, it's, this is 3 o'clock in the morning. I said, look, and it just hit me out of the blue. I said, you know, there's two kinds of people. I've just, just been thinking about this, really. There's the kind of guy who believes in the world of the office. He really believes in file cabinets. He believes in luncheons. He believes that the day, the, the, that, the time from 8 a.m. to 6 in the evening is the time he's alive. The phone call, the... the yeah. The, the lunch, the appointment. And the time after that is just dead time. He yeah. flops down in front of the TV set. He drinks his beer. He goes to sleep. Just waiting for the next day. I said, now that is a day person. His world is the day world. But there's the other guy whose world begins the minute he gets out of that office. And his time is at 4 o'clock in the morning, 2 in the morning. He's his own private world. He's a night person. That's, I created the term, night person, and you will find it in the American Dictionary of Slang and Usage, and they credit me with it. Hmm. And I said, and of course, 
The opposite number is the day person, and they're constantly battling. Only they don't know that they are. So you're sitting in this sales meeting, and here is this guy sitting over here, and he's got this light of, e of ecclesiastical fervor. He believes in Operation Dynamo that you're about to foist on the public. He believes in it. See, and you're sitting there all... Oh, William McCormick. Yeah, that's yeah. right, Bill McCormick. And you're sitting over there, is this guy serious? He really believes in it? And you try to make a funny with him. He says, well, you know, remember what happened to Operation uh, Over the Top? <laughs> <laughs> and he looks at you. you know. <laughs> well, of yeah. course, if it hadn't been for Fred and accounting, that would have yeah. gone over. <laughs> well, there's the two, there's the battle, you see, going on. And I said, now, let's face it. It's the day people who buy lists. They are statistically oriented, and they will not go to a hit show unless there is a line of over 100 in front of that box office. I mean, it could be the worst turkey in the world. If they read in the paper it costs $20 to get a ticket, that's better than a $1 ticket. They're oriented to money. A $5,000 car must be five times better than a $1,000 car, even if the transmission is made out of balsa wood. It's got to be better. Now, that's the statistical mind, and he is the day man. So I said, now, if you think I'm kidding, I said, I'll tell you what. I said, the day man is not listening to us. He can't consider. He thinks we're nuts. He says, he's listening to me, and he says, what's this not talking about? And he goes off, and he gets WPAT on, you know, with that nice Montevani record, you know, <laughs> this, the opiate for the masses. Yeah. See? And, uh, I said, I says, now, I says, well, I'll tell you what, let's do. I says, if you think I'm kidding. I said, what do you say tomorrow morning, each one of us, walk into a bookstore and ask for a book that we know does not exist? It, 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 we're we're going to create it here. It does not exist. Walk into a bookstore and ask for a book that we know does not exist. It, 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 we're, we're going to create it here. It does not exist. Let's just see what happens. Because the day man will believe that it ha is. And let's see how it works. I said, now look, since we're all in this together, what do you say now? We're going to make this a communal affair. And I'm not... You give me a suggestion for a title. Just call it in. And millions of calls. They were coming from, you know, at night, the 50,000-watt yeah. station at 4 in the morning. I'm getting calls from Alaska. And these guys are giving me all these suggestions for titles. And finally, at, at 4.30 in the morning, it was getting so late, I had to go off at 5.30. I said, okay, okay, it's closed. I picked the title. And some unknown guy called in this title, I Libertine. I said, now that sounds like a book. I mean, it could be almost anything. I, comma, libertine. Yeah. I said, now, I'm going to create... You've got to have an author. Because today, you know, most people, you know, they say, if you read the newest Faulkner, uh, Jacqueline Suzanne's a big yeah. deal, you know. You've got to have an author. All right, I'll create an author. And I sat for a minute. It just hit me, the name. I says, okay, the author's name is Frederick Ewing. Frederick Roland Ewing. He's British. He was uh, a lieutenant commander in World War II on the North Atlantic from Romansk Run. He is now a civil servant in Rhodesia. He is married to Marjorie, a horsewoman from the North Country. He writes extensively for The Observer, and he is known primarily for his pre-World War II broadcasts on the third program of the BBC, 18th Century Erotica. 
and he's a scholar, and I, Libertine is the first volume of a trilogy on 18th century English court life. And by the way, Mr. Ewing is quite surprised at the success his book is, is enjoying, since it was written primarily for scholars. <laughs> people do not misunderstand certain chapters that are there for the purpose of scholarly research. And I said, just go in and say, I would like uh, Ewing's I Libertine. I says, and if anybody asks you, uh, it's, it's, it was printed by Excelsior Press, yeah. which, by the way, is a subsidiary of Cambridge University Imprint. There is not a bookseller in the country that can argue with Cambridge <laughs> and a British author who's married to a lady named Marjorie. I says, now you go in and don't crack a smile. Don't do anything. And when, when the man says to you, the first thing, I says, he's also bound by lists. The first thing he'll do, you'll walk in and say, I would like to have a copy of I, Libertine by Frederick Ewing. And he'll say, who published it? You say, Excelsior Press. Mm-hmm. Oh, yes, of course. Yes, uh, just a moment. Um, and he'll take out a list, and he'll look it up, and he'll see that it is not listed. He will turn to you and say, there's no such book. <laughs> so well, I'll go to Double Days then and leave. Well, the next guy that comes in and asks for this, he'll say, uh, uh, it's on order. <laughs> and the third one that comes in, he's going to be on his phone calling the distributor. Yeah. And the distributor's going to say to him, you're out of your bird, Fred. You're being put on. There's no such book. I've got the big list here. And there's nothing like that. Well, if 422 bookstores call in, he's going to be calling Publishers <laughs> Weekly. And within 20 minutes, Publishers Weekly has collapsed in a pile of rubble. <laughs> and remember, it's a six ninety-five book. They don't laugh at a $7 book. I says, now get out and go. And we'll sit back and see what happens. Now remember... Every listener knew that book did not exist. And they knew it didn't exist. I says, now remember, it does not exist. You know this, and let's see what happens. And I says, you let me know tomorrow morning and, and the day after that, give me reports, and I will give them out to the listeners what's happening. Sure enough, <laughs> the next day a guy says, you know, he says, for, for years this guy in this A Street bookstore with this beard has had me totally buffaloed. I mean, he stands back at that cash register, and you have a feeling that he wrote Kierkegaard. That <laughs> <laughs> he was behind Schopenhauer when Schopenhauer wrote this stuff, and he says, you know, he used to say things like this. I'd go in and I'd say, uh, you know, I'd, there's something about Marcel Proust. He says, well, of course, Proust never matured. And he says, you know, I, uh, he says, I went in there today, and I said to this guy, I'd like a copy of I, Libertine by Ewing. And he says, he looked up from behind the cash register and said, Ewing, it's about time the public discovered him. <laughs> <laughs> he says, the scales fell from my eyes. He says, he says I learned something. And, 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 and I'm getting these calls from people up. And one woman wrote in, and she, you know, the, two days later, she says she was sitting in her bridge party. And she just casually mentioned, uh, gee, I've been reading uh, I, Libertine. And three ladies started to discuss it. <laughs> They not only had read it, they finished it, and two of them didn't like it. And so she says, it was all that. She says, uh, and, and, I, and, and then I got a letter from a kid at, the, at, at two weeks later. They're coming in from all over the country saying, what's happening is that people are hearing this, you know, airline pilots were listening. It was spreading to Paris, Rome, Japan, every place else. 
And, and a guy wrote me a letter. He says, Shepard, he says, this is, he says, don't say anything about this. He says, look at this. And he enclosed in this envelope, he says, I'm a student at a university, which I shall not name. It's in Jersey. I'll pick up pen names. Let's think of some funny Rutgers. He was a student at this non-existent school called Rutgers thing. And he says, uh, he says, I have, I'm in this English, <coughs> this, this history of English writing course. And he said, I wrote a term paper on F.R. Ewing, eclectic historian. And it was about a nine-page paper with footnotes, quotes <laughs> from Ewing's earlier BBC broadcasts, <laughs> references. <laughs> and the thing, he sent it to me, and it had a big red thing on the front of it. It said, superb research. He got a B plus. Always a B plus. Yeah. Never an and a. the guy, you know, and the guy says, he says, what? He says, my whole education is probably phony. He says, oh, but there wasn't even a Chaucer. <laughs> you know, this could have been some guy 400 years ago, you know, putting the whole world on. So all of it, and I says, wait, let's sit back. I says, don't say anything. Just keep asking. Well, do you know within four weeks there was a piece appeared in the Earl Wilson column. It said, had lunch with Freddie Ewing. <laughs> on his way to India with his wife Marjorie. Oh, no. <laughs> I'm not kidding you. <laughs> you know, and I begin to get frightened, you know, because it's like a guy who, who stands at the base of a mountain and he says to himself, gee, I wonder what would happen if I threw a pebble up there. And he throws one up there, and the next thing you know, he's got a 420 trillion ton avalanche yeah. coming down on him. You know, it, it's just incredible. It, this thing pyramided. And so I began to get all over. Do you know that, that at the end of the sixth week, one of the funniest things that happened, that one of the book supplements, at that time there were three book supplements published with Sunday newspapers in New York. There was the New York Times book supplement, and there were two others. One of the book supplements had a review of I, Libertine. Now, how could that have happened? Well, now, here's what I said. Now, wait a minute. Now, now that, that goes I, into later. Now, uh, this is the truth. I've got it all in I know. I, I know it's the truth. Now, how? how it happened was my listeners all over the place, even book reviewers, were foisting it on people. Oh. They were calling up editors, I'd like to review this new book. And they, 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 see, listeners were beginning to throw their... And I says, any place you can throw your little hooker in, let's do it and see what happens. So some PR man <laughs> wrote to, to one of the columnists, and next thing you know, they're having lunch with Freddie, Freddie Ewing's. Well, these, these comments about Ewing began to appear all over in the newspapers. And the final upshot of it all was, I'm getting letters from people that says, you know, the, uh, the other day the, the, my boss asked me if I read it. So what do I say? So my boss reads all the book club books. And he's waiting for it to come in the book club, you know. And the boss, he says, it's all this stuff. And one day, the final one, it, it scared me. I, Libertine was on the proscribed list. It was banned by a very prominent church. I was going to remain nameless. <laughs> I'm not kidding. Yeah, I didn't but know. By the that, Boston that Diocese. No, this this blew the gap. I said, <laughs> and my listeners are staggering. You know, what, what they, and, and what do you think at the end of the seventh week? It is on a nationwide bestseller list. But, Gene, this is an interject one. Do you mean that it's possible that several hundred I'm telling people... you what happened. Yeah, but 700 people that no. have been excommunicated no, 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 for no, reading no, the book. That's right. Let me then they see you're killing the story. But that, that, I'm telling you what happened. This is not a thing for gags. This is just exactly a historical thing. And I'm sitting back there, and all this stuff is happening. See? And 
about, I'd say, 2 o'clock on a, an, on a oh, it was, I think it was a Wednesday or a Thursday morning, and this has been going for eight weeks now, that it is now a bestseller in Paris, in Rome. They're asking for it in bookstores. They're asking for it in places like Honolulu, everywhere, all over. And, and the people who are asking for it, remember, know that it doesn't exist. That's the important point. Right. They are sitting back and watching the repercussions. And here it is, you know, the, 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 there's no mentions of the book in all kinds of columns and everywhere of people who think it does exist. I says, remember, friends, they think it does. And when we were banned in Boston by a very prominent church, I mean... Our whole, whole, our whole world was crumbling. You see, I mean, by now I was a little afraid. You know, next thing you know, the president's going to mention it. You know, <laughs> that he loves this book. See, then I wouldn't believe in anything. You know, <laughs> and 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 about two o'clock in the morning, I get a telephone call, and this guy gets on the phone, on the phone, very funny voice, and he says, "Look," he says, "Shep," he said, "He says, you know, you're right. You touched on something very important. There are two kinds of people in this country: the believers and us." And he said, I am a reporter for the Wall Street Journal. And he says, I've listened to this thing from the beginning. He says, it's incredible. And by the way, we had even had a, an editorial, an editorial in life. And, and he said, this is fantastic. And he says, don't you think it's about time to spill the story? And I said, yeah, I think so. I said, this is getting out of hand. And so he came down to the office, and I showed him all this documentary proof, and he went back to his office, and he worked on this piece. And on Wednesday afternoon, on this August, hot August day, it appeared front page, middle, two, three-column banner. It says, gigantic literary hoax. Shows the, the, real, the real phoniness behind a lot of the things that people believe in, like lists, and so on, and he had the whole thing documented. Well, that came out on the newsstands at 3 o'clock in the afternoon, and I was sitting in my office. It was fantastic. At 3.01, I would say with it between 3.01 and 3.05, there were six countries on the phone calling me about that. Melbourne was calling. Rome was calling. Newspaper editors, Figaro, the German newspapers, everywhere. It was a fantastic story. And and that story, it's probably one of the very few stories that has ever been printed, word for word, taken out of the Wall Street Journal and reprinted in Pravda. It was printed exactly word for word. Well, well, this thing just blew to the point where, where people were calling from all over. And then, it, it, it was never at any point was there any PR involved. It was a, a whole series of forces that came together. And I think that time... That particular year was the beginning of the whole new attitude that people have today towards things which they never questioned. People today question politicians. They never did, really. They used to say things about it, but today they really question. Uh, people look at things, and it was the beginning, and I'm not saying that started it. I'm saying that was the beginning uh, of, a, of a whole thing. After that, Mort Saul grew, and Money Bruce, and the whole... The whole thing changed over almost almost in that period overnight it just began to mushroom isn't there more to that story about the book 
Oh, there's much more, but we we, we, oh. we don't have that time. Am I crazy, or did I read that somebody eventually wrote a book? No, later then. You see, when it was okay, later on about you a, see, you know. you're, you're going ahead again. Then so then uh, one day, a friend of mine, a writer, Ted Sturgeon. Ted right, Sturgeon right. called me one day and and said, "Listen, he says, you know, he says there's this publisher, who." He says, he's a paperback publisher, and he says, you have got him taking... He says, this guy is going around all over the world trying to get the paperback print, reprints, <laughs> rights on I Love Day. And so he says, let's have lunch with him. And he says, let's have kicks. So I sat down with him, and he says, uh, we were eating lunch, and he turns to him, and he said, listen, he said, would you like to meet... The, the publisher was Ian Valentine. Valentine, he yeah. said, would you like to meet I Love Would you like to meet Fred Ewing? And, and Ian is a very innocent type guy. He says, yeah, he says, I certainly would. He says, I'd be very interested in meeting him. And he says, well, here he is, sitting right here. Hmm. And that lunch, we decided, he says, well, let's turn out I Liberty. Hmm. And all yeah. the day people will buy it. The night people will know. <laughs> and, and, and we turned all the, we took, we took all the profits of things, by the way, and turned it over to charity, in case you're interested. I didn't know that. Oh, yeah. yeah. It was not a, a, a commercial deal in, in any sense of the word. So we put this baby on, and sure enough, we, we're together. He and I, we, we banged this thing out, you know, we're sitting like, like and, and it became a bestseller, genuinely, after that. But the whole, mm. the whole progression of this thing. So, now, in America, this is, and then I, the, 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 the further lesson that all of my listeners learned was the way it was reported in the press. It says things like, uh, Disc jockey uh, sells non-existent book to listeners. Yeah. Exactly the reverse. The listeners sold a non-existent book to the world. It was a very, and they went on. You know, they didn't want to admit. They even had. Yeah. Well, no, no, not that they got took. That the thing was a comment on the entire structure of the official critic, the official layer down of the eight best dressed people. Newspapers go for this kind of stuff. The ten bestseller books. They're the final. It still happens today, though. Yeah. It still does. Joe, it never changed. No, no, wait. No, no, excuse me. No, no, don't go into that. We know that it, it still goes today. But I'm saying this is why it was never reported and, and analyzed for what it really was, except overseas, that the British press loved this. And just a few years ago, that story, which you don't even remember, interestingly enough, it's been forgotten in America, but all over the world it is recognized as a real comment on the public relations world, uh, the, the world of the, of the glib uh, newspaper writer, the, the, the whole thing, of the, the official lists. And the Daily Express of London a few years ago picked the 50 greatest hoaxes of the 20th century up to that time, which was 1962 or 63. And I, Libertine, they gave it a... a great big spread mm. it was one of the great hoaxes of all time so it wasn't just a little gag that it no, got no, it, it, yeah. no it had a, it had over uh, over season now many times we've heard the story of somebody who creates a non-existent thing and gets little plugs in the paper and all right. that but that's not what we did this was very different and when your book is banned that's something else that's and, uh, reviewed it's uh yeah, and and uh, and by the way, if uh, all this is documented, Time Magazine did no, a big story. I remember story the whole thing. The Bob Newsweek did a big story in Life. This was all afterwards, you yeah. know, on the on the actual story. But none of them really touched on the meaning of the story because that was still too early. If this thing had happened today, 
with the I think people are much more aware uh, even the writers and you know they would make the moral of this thing but the moral was never mentioned in any of the pieces except in the Wall Street Journal and outside the country yeah and outside yeah. the country but it was it was a fantastic story it's a great story and uh, it it uh, it I think a lot of people who are involved in it I'm talking about listeners and so on who are involved during that whole progression of events never were the same in their lives after that. They never could that. seriously sit and watch the Academy Awards. Or even polls. You know, they read mm -hmm. the Harris poll. It says, Charlie Brown leads Fred Applerock by two-tenths of a percentage point. Uh, these things like you pick up TV Guide, and it says, uh, Ed Sullivan has 37.9 years. Yeah, sure. Uh, right. that, that, that it shook everybody. Only in America, by the way, do we place such importance on these these abstract numbers as to whether Bonanza is two-tenths of a point higher than uh, the true. Smothers Brothers. Not only that, numbers right through government. You remember that book uh, 10, 15 years ago, How to Lie with Statistics? Yeah. Well, the, well, people it's, aren't uh, lying. They're just, they're just totally fallacious. They don't, uh, it's not a matter of lying. January 29th, Bill Mazur invites you to Radio Premier Week on WNBC New York. I don't know if you believe in flying saucers or not, but a very good friend of mine, Frank Edwards, has written some of the great books. And incidentally, for your information, in case you're unaware of it, well, one of the most sensational sellers in the flying saucer field, it was on the best-selling list for so many weeks, was a book written by Frank Edwards titled Flying Saucer Serious Business. Right now, a brand-new book has been published. Frank Edwards, Flying Saucers, Here and Now. Now, this book brings you up to date with the new and startling developments in the unidentified flying objects mystery since January 1966. There is no book on the market today that is as up to date as Frank Edwards' new book titled Here and Now. Let me take a moment of your time to tell you about some of the goodies in this book. In this book, Frank Edwards documents UFO sightings by a Florida governor, by scores of police officers, a Maryland newspaper editor, a New Orleans colonel, two Australian constables, eight members of the Royal Canadian Air Force, sightings by psychologists, astronomers, airline pilots, scientists, and by top executives of the largest commercial aircraft companies in the world. Now, included there are a group of what I would like to label as just sensational photographs. These were taken by observers ranging from teenagers with Polaroids to astronauts uh, with the space program's most sophisticated camera. And many of these are published for the first time, this, this information. And I would like to have you go to your favorite bookstore and get a copy of Frank Edwards' new book, Flying Saucers, Here and Now. It contains a wealth of information. Questions are answered, such as, where do the UFOs come from? That's right, Frank answers it in the new book titled, Flying Saucers, Here and Now. Is it true that UFOs are not tracked on radar? Well, read the book and you'll find out. Do we ever get pieces of UFOs? Yes, those questions and many others are answered in Frank Edwards' new book, 
flying saucers here and now. May I suggest to you to go to your favorite bookstore today and ask for flying saucers here and now by Frank Edwards. Let me take just a moment to remind you that if you happen to get a copy of the Sunday News, which I have not got it yet because it isn't Sunday, uh, but I understand that Ben Gross has written a story about the show, and many of our listeners might be interested in reading it. Ben Gross is the dean of radio and TV editors. He's the man who's responsible for one of the best books ever written on the subject of radio and TV, titled I Looked and I Listened. So it's in the issue dated January 21, New York Sunday News, this Sunday. If you have a chance, you might want to look at it. And now uh, back with our guest. <laughs> Sanford Teller is with us. Mr. Teller is a public relations consultant. And we have Robert Kochner, who's managing editor of Newspaper Enterprise Association. And uh, Dick Raskin, who is a college student and uh, also a pretty good man on guitar. And we have Gene Shepard, who is a well-known broadcaster, an actor, and an author. And in fact, his book... In God We Trust, All Others Pay Cash, which was published by Doubleday, is now in softcover, paperback edition. John, by the way, I'm glad you mentioned that. Panther. I'm going to go back into... Uh, you You remember I did Voice of the Turtle, you recall seeing Yes, sure, I was there. I'm going to go back yeah. into uh, the theater more this coming year. I've got all kinds of plans and... Several people have been talking to me about. It. I haven't had time since I've been doing all this writing. You know, that's mm -hmm. why I really kind of uh, put down my acting career. But I love acting. I enjoy it tremendously. And uh, I'm going to do some stuff this coming fall. Mm -hmm. Something in particular that uh, you want to mention? Now? I can't yet. I can't mm -hmm. say anything yet. Uh, just suffice it to say, John, I'm sharpening up my tap dancing. Well, very good. Buddy Berkeley <laughs> back again. Yes. You doing off to Buffalo a break? Oh, no, 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 no. Hello? This is more interpretive dance. Oh, pardon me. Pardon me, Mr. Purple Shepherd. lights and the, and the tights and Thank all you, Mr. Shepard. You're not going to be in the Martha Graham Company, are you? No. He's no, not allowed to divulge at the moment what oh. he is going to be doing. <laughs> this is a secret. You know, Dick Raskin... Uh, was a listener of yours and a fan of yours when he was going to high school. And of course, then he went out to the coast for a while, and he just came back, and he got hooked recently listening to you again. When did you first start to listen? Must have been in 19... Can you get a little closer yeah. there, Dick? In 59, you were the first time... When you were on before Long John was on. Yeah, yeah. well, that was uh, later when John took over the all-night trick on WOR. I, I took it over in 56. Yeah, my show, I, I had a show from 11.15 till midnight. Till midnight. Yeah. That was the one. I used to get scared to death. He did the end of the world one night, I think. Yeah. Scared to death. Well, well I, I, I did the real end of the world, the way it really would be, uh, as opposed to the science fiction way. I said, can you imagine? What is the difference? Well, there's a big difference, because it, it seems to be very innocent when you read it, in, and kind of exciting when you read it in science fiction. But I, I did a show one night based on, can you imagine what would happen if the world really was ending? And you were there. Uh... <laughs> and I and I reproduced it. By the way, Dick, uh, John says you play guitar, and uh, you're out on the coast. What do you think of the coast as opposed to the East Coast, since you're uh, uh, living in, and have lived in both places? 
I love the coast. It's uh, it's a different kind of thing. It's a little bit, to me, easier going. Because I've been in school. I'm not too involved in you know the life anywhere. I guess academically, you, know, yeah. you get out of what's really happening. But you come back to New York, and all of a sudden things seem to speed up again. And trying to get involved in it, uh, it's a little difficult because I've been gone. Your pace has changed too. Yeah, on the coast. Yeah, they talk fast here. Yeah, I can't understand this. What's <laughs> what school do you go to? I go to Valley College there. Valley? It's a junior college. They've got a fantastic system. It's better than New York. I like the educational system out there. And I, I don't know, I like the coast better than New York. Everything has its good points. You know, let's say yeah. this is, on a few point scales, better. It's strange to be back in New York, but it, just to see places, see the changes. It's, it's, it's a, to me, it's an amazing city. New York always has been. But... uh they're just the theater. The one it thing is I a miss, peculiar mistake, New York. It really is. You know, it's funny. You, know, you, you talk about going back into acting again. Yeah. When I came out here, the theater in New York can't be beat. I, I mean, there's no place in the world. Because I love theater. I was no, yeah. raised in New York. And uh, to go to Broadway and see a good show, you know, not necessarily because the critics... And have your a choice show. of all kinds of things to do. You don't just... see many good shows nowadays, though, do you? On Broadway or off Broadway? I don't... You say the theater in, in New York. I'm wondering if... A, it's really the place where things are happening in the theater. Well, Bob, they've always said that about New York theater, though. You know, it's funny. If you go back to the 1890s, you read editorials saying the theater is dying. Uh, and in any given year... Oh, yes, you hear that again and again. But I'm just wondering if this, uh, there's something... I've never said the theater is dying in New York. I don't know if I'm prepared to. But I've seen theaters outside the city, repertory companies, for example. Uh... What's his name? The one in, I think, in Milwaukee is one. Guthrie. Or the Washington, the Guthrie, the yeah. Guthrie Theater, and the Washington. Uh, well, Bob, theater. maybe, maybe, maybe it's a matter of definition. I think uh, the New York theater isn't really theater; it's showbiz. Uh, this is a very different thing. What David Merrick is doing is really, uh, the, the, we have to make that differentiation That's between true. theater and showbiz. And New York is, after all, millions ride on shows in New York, and they don't in Milwaukee. Uh, and I'm certainly not condoning the showbiz mystique in New York, but it is showbiz. And when you bring a show in that costs $297,000 just to get on a stage, uh, you're not as much concerned with art as you are with box office because you have a lot of people to answer. Why is it then that so many of these $297,000 shows fail in the first few days? Well, because they're not good. Because, you see, this... Uh, even if they only pay $24 to put the show on, they might fail. Uh, that money is no criterion of it, but uh, this is a this is a big roulette wheel here mm. in New York, and and uh, showbiz really has taken over much greater in 1968 than it was, say, prevalent in 1958. We'll mm. say uh, because costs have gone up, and the whole that no longer is there such a thing as the little show it's impossible so so you take a, a even if you if you even if you see a, a show on broadway that there's only two characters these two characters are drawing down very heavy cash uh the rent on the theater all oh, the whole thing so there's no such thing as bringing in a show for twenty three thousand dollars not on broadway itself not on broadway sure we're talking about broadway we just change the subject here because of a telegram that came in. Uh, Long John, this is from an old friend, by the way, of the show, a name that uh, Shep will remember. Long John, 
Shep is also a beautiful draftsman. Would appreciate some of his comments on the current art scene and sign Arnold Berger. Oh, thank you, you Arnold. Arnold uh, great I, he's referring to the fact that one of my activities, I also, I'm a line, uh, I hesitate to word use, uh, word, use the word artist because I've already used that, but I do line drawings and I've done stuff for The Voice and for Doubleday. And Arnold's a fine, fine sculptor, by the way. Excellent. And, uh, Arnold, I can say what art scene. <laughs> what about? Let me ask you uh, what uh, you would uh, comment about Andy Warhol, for example. Oh well, I don't think. Let's not confuse popularity with art. No, I want no. In other words, Warhol today the, uh, is commercial. I'm not saying it's art. Are you saying it's not art? Well, there's that age-old argument as what constitutes art, and like a lot of other words in our language, the word art has gone through a rapid transition in maybe 10 years. And today, uh, the word art, people use it to even describe insurance selling. They'll call it the art of uh, salesmanship. Art of love. Yeah, everything is an art today. So when you you talk about Warhol, you have to say Warhol is also a product of this time, that anything is art if you want to call it that. And if enough people say it is, then for them, briefly, for that time, it is. Right. But I say that that uh, that this stuff is as trans... Because you, you look at a Warhol today. Warhol is strangely old-fashioned. Uh, Warhol... Old soup cans. No, no, I don't mean his content. I mean the <laughs> concept. Warhol is as out of date, believe me, as uh, September morn. Somebody else said that about it. Well, it's true. On the show, too. That's the thing with pop culture. See, pop culture is transitory culture. It has no genuine base. It's transitory. Mm. It's like a pop song. I often wonder, you know, you you hear all these hit records, and everybody says, you know, they're all going out. I wonder what a pop record fan does with last year's records. Some people must have 227,000 records that they never conceivably play. How would you classify the Beatles in all of this? Is there any kind of lasting power to the Beatles? Uh, the kind of records that you uh, might have five years from now and play five years from now? Personally, I don't think so. Yeah. Uh, see, we're, we're, we're making a great... Uh, today, pop, the word pop, and I'm in a pop medium, and incidentally, yeah. I know Marshall McLuhan. McLuhan has written about my show, so I'm in that world. Uh... And I think today we're getting very self-conscious about pop art. Mm-hmm. And so the most popular of the pop art is always considered great art. Hence, uh, to, forever. Hence, it's supposed to have great lasting value. Well, this is kind of sad. Uh, <laughs> but, you know, on the other hand, it would seem that not until, not until recently did people uh, actually seriously look at the pop culture. I don't know whether... Yeah, but that still doesn't thing. make it any no. less or any the more transitory. I've noticed that that, uh, that uh, you, take, you take people like the Beatles and so on. I noticed that their earlier records are never played, That's which right. means then that their art really, if, even within their own milieu, is transitory. Of course, the other thing is, the other explanation is, well, now they've developed into art. You see, which they had their origins five years ago. Now it is art. Well, you're now you're sure. saying then that what they're cutting now, you will hear ten years. I'm from not now. saying that. Well, I'm that not saying that. Remains to be seen. Yeah. See, but at any given time, I remember. Say that. Yeah. Look, I've had this same argument over and over again, uh, it, Sandy, with people, and I, I and and I keep saying to them, you know, there's no way for you to know. 
uh, it's, I remember one time uh, having an argument with somebody in a radio station about Bill Haley. Yeah. And, and everybody said, well, you know, this is uh, such a fantastically popular thing. It's really going to go on and on. Well, whoever hears of Bill Haley today? Now that, uh, I think, was a great show. I wish there were more. And, and these shows do exist, a lot of them, in an archive at the Universe uh, of in Syracuse, New York, I think it's a SUNY, the State University of New York, in Syracuse, wound up with the estate of Long John Nebel when he passed uh, away. And like everything else, like the Vic and Shades, nobody really knows who owns the copyrights to these radio shows because sound recordings and radio are just this ephemeral thing that they didn't even consider may have any future value, but somebody owns it. And if you try to make value out of it, uh, odds are somebody somewhere along the line is going to come along and say, oh, I own that, or I think I own that, or you can't do that, or you need to pay. And it's back to everything in our culture these days is about the dollar. And this they're even talking about the beginning of it. Um, and Shepard is so great. Long John Nebel is so great. These are great minds getting together. And I was wrong. This is from 1968, I believe. January 13th, 1968, to be precise. And already Long John Nebel is on NBC radio in New York which, of course, is where Howard Stern later started. But that's a whole other story. Overnights on NBC, they actually stopped playing music at that point and had this long John Nebel show. Oh, thank goodness somebody somewhere recorded it and put it on a site where we can grab it, put it here, and uh, make this show of shows extra special along the lines of uh, kind of what I'm doing with the... Uh, Big Appreciation Showcase, which some of you may have already heard, and some of you might be interested in. I uh, put together old on-sug shows, old radio shows, both really vintage 40s, 30s, 50s, and talk shows dating up into the 80s, maybe even later, I'm not sure. But uh, it's not about the date. It's about remembering and things that perhaps are being forgotten um, the whole I Libertine story you just heard. This was a remarkable phenomenon in its day. This whole, they gamed the actual book industry at, back in what this happened in the 50s. It, it, it's a great story, and there are more facets to it if you read up on it. That was just, and talking about Playboy magazine, which in the day, especially in the 60s, it was so huge and such a pop culture phenomenon. I mean, I guess they still publish it, but it it was like with a premier fiction, interviews with really famous people who did not get interviewed in depth anywhere else. Back then, an interview was like, what, 10 questions in a newspaper. The Playboy interview really upped the game, and the ones from the 60s and 70s are still really good looks at the people the subjects that Hugh Hefner sent his people out to interview. 
and the fiction so many great writers, like like Gene Shepard, were showcased there. I mean, yes, you had The New Yorker, which had a better reputation back then, but you heard the difference from people who knew in the day. So, uh, yes, thank you, Frank. Thank you. And uh, we had a decent show of shows, considering it was just Frank and I. I feel I can um, say this was a very fine overnight scape central and uh, all kinds of stuff to come. But here is where I invite you to do a follow up. Yes, if you want to do a show or present a show or talk about a show for next week's show. Yes, please do that. I'm going to give you the email address for that. But the actual topic that I am uh, proposing and setting up for next week is what next? What next? I mean, this world right now, and I'm not, yes, you can talk about the far-flung future, but just what's going to happen in the next few weeks, the next few months anymore is like some sort of strange uh, gamble, gambit. Uh, Who's going to do what? What's going to become this big controversy that may or may not be distracting us from some other big controversy? Let's talk about it. Let's hear what you have to think. And this is your opportunity to have your say right here on the Overnight Scape Central. The deadline is next Monday, which is August 14th, 2023. Get me your entry by uh, evening time, uh, mountain time. I'm here in New Mexico. Uh, We're pretty flexible. In fact, let's take a quick look at our... uh, and see if somebody is sneaking in, sneaking something in here. No, there is nobody slipping something in at the last minute. So but that's what we have. The email address, yes, you get a pen and a piece of paper or whatever you use to write such things down. Open up your email and type it in and start and record something right now. It doesn't have to be long. It can be short and succinct. You can ramble all you want. You can tell us about yourself if you're new to the channel. This is an open forum. The email address is kpqr.torc at gmail.com. Once again, kpqr.torc at gmail.com. You can always reach me on the Overnightscape Facebook page or group or whatever it is. I can never keep track. I think it's a group. Join the group. Stay in touch. Make comments. Interact. This is what it's all about here on the Overnight Scape Underground. We want to hear from you. We want your ears, of course, because uh, it's nice to know that somebody's listening. And I am glad that you are. And until next week, where we will be talking about, once again, what next. And maybe you'll be here, or maybe you'll have a show. Maybe you'll have something to say that I haven't even thought of. But bring it. Bring it here. And until next we meet, of course, as I always say, set the controls for the heart of the fun. Even if things are strange.